Explore Pragmatic Institute's training to help your organization become data-driven. Our courses provide teams with the hands-on practice and skills they need to leverage data for business success. Visit pragmaticinstitute.com slash data today. Welcome to Data Chats, a podcast by Pragmatic Institute and the Data Incubator, where we tackle topics and trends with experts, industry leaders, instructors, and alumni. I'm your host, Chris Richardson. Today, I'm sitting down with Amy Cecil, co-founder and board member of the Data Visualization Society and a product evangelist at Everviz. Amy is a data visualization designer and instructor at MECA, the Maryland Institute College of Art and has pioneered the use of data visualization style guides. She is a three-time Information is Beautiful award winner and enjoys creating unusual data visualizations. Lots to talk about. Amy, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm happy to be here. This is great. Thank you for having me on. Thanks. Yeah, well, I think there's a bunch of stuff that uh, will be cool to get into, but I think I'd like to start off with maybe a little bit more about you and your professional background. If you could tell us a little bit about sort of where you're coming from and what kind of experience you had that uh, that brought you to where you are today. Sure. I have a graphic design background. That's sort of where I got started. Um, and then I have a master's degree in information visualization from the Maryland Institute and College of Art. I've worked for the federal government in agencies like CFPB and GSA, as well as a bunch of data-driven organizations. I was the design director of data visualization and ran a team of data visualization designers at Morning Consult. My time in the master's degree program at Maryland Institute and College of Art sort of led me to co-found the Data Visualization Society, which is a global professional organization with over 20,000 members. I'm wow. also, as you mentioned, a three-time Information is Beautiful award winner, and I won all three of those awards for data visualizations that I just did on my own, just weird little things that ended up getting recognized by the community, which was really interesting and fun to, to work on. Now what I'm doing is I teach at MICA, which is the Maryland Institute and College of Art, in their remote data analytics and visualization program. I'm a product evangelist for Everviz, and I also consult and do other freelance work. Cool. Yeah. So you're a busy person. I'm a busy person, but I, I come to data visualization with a design background. And so that's sort of the lens that I bring to it. And that's how I first got started. Um, I was working at the Sunlight Foundation as a designer, and I was assigned sort of randomly to help make the researchers' charts better. That was the, that was the prompt that I was given was make these graphs better. Uh, but I found out that I really loved using the power of design to make information more easy to understand. And that persuaded me to pursue a degree in the field. Yeah. And I think that can be really helpful for our listeners right now, but also uh, more generally, I think, because that's something that I think a lot of people wish they had, but don't who are working in data is that kind of visual background and design background. Uh, but I, obviously there's uh, a mastery level that you have, but then there's some tips that anyone can, can learn from you to improve, even if slightly, what they're working on. I wonder, maybe we can start with the Information is Beautiful. I'm sure most of our listeners are familiar with it. If not, it's definitely a site that you should check out because there's lots of great, inspiring work. But maybe you could say a little bit more about uh, the work that you did that uh, became award-winning and also what got you into that and what, what your process was for making those. 
Sure. So the Information Beautiful Awards is now hosted by the Data Visualization Society. Um, their previous hosts sort of dropped them during the pandemic or, or right around that. And so the awards had stopped for a couple of years. Hmm. And the Data Visualization Society stepped up in the community to take those awards on and, and continue the legacy of, of recognizing people in the community for doing interesting work. So one of the awards that I won was for doing what I call my Daydoviz project. I looked at a, uh, a 100 things sort of project is that you, you create 100 things and it's supposed to be a creative challenge and get you out of your normal rut. And I was really thinking, like, how can I apply this to data visualization? But I didn't want to do it on the computer. I worked on the computer every day and I, I wanted to take a step back with that. Um, I also have a ceramics background. I was a camp counselor and worked in ceramics. And so I wanted to do something physical with my hands, but that wasn't drawing. Um, a lot of people do data visualization using Legos, but I wanted something more, less structured, right? More creative. And so I used Play-Doh. Play-Doh's fun. Play-Doh's relatable. Anyone can sort of, you can't be a master of Play-Doh, right? It's just, <laughs> it's not precise enough. I don't know. My um, and so it was something might be a master of Play-Doh. <laughs> my five-year-old but yeah right and so it was just something that people could relate to um and i ended up making a series of i didn't get to 100 maybe about 60 visualizations with play-doh on on a range of topics uh, and that was one of the projects that was awarded um another one was my husband and i he was one of the researchers i was working with at the sunlight foundation so he has a data background i have a design background mm -hmm. uh we wanted to collaborate on some visualizations for our wedding. So we come from these worlds. Not everyone in our family sort of knows or understands what we do. So this was a great way to, to showcase that. Um, and we made name badges that were custom for each guest that had a little heart on it. And half of the heart represented, the height of the heart lobe represented the time that you knew me and the other half of the heart lobe represented the time that you knew my husband and they were color coded by how we met people. And that was all put up onto this large network visualization of <laughs> how everyone knew each other. And it was just a, a great, really interesting piece. My husband, at the time that we were doing this two weeks before our wedding, finishing things up, he was like, why are we doing this? But in <laughs> retrospect... I think it was it was really worth it. And it was it also won an Information is Beautiful Award. Okay. Wow. So you got you got a marriage and an Information is Beautiful Award out of it. <laughs> it's true. It was a it was a great day. Yeah. No, and that's actually it's actually a great connection. So like you personally have a, a great collaboration, it sounds like, where you, you have two sort of specializations. And I think that's almost ideal, but I wonder if you could say more about um about how those two worlds of like the data professional and the uh, design professional, how those, I think they're sinking in more ways as time has gone by and as people realize that data professionals need to do a better job in design and maybe designers can do a better job with data. So how do you, how do you merge those two more regularly? And it doesn't just have to be you and your husband, but, uh, but in general, what, uh, what advice do you have for like making those two groups speak better together? Sure. I'm a little biased. My husband, Xander, is my favorite collaborator. Um, <laughs> But it's true. We So we met and he did not know that much about design. Um, I had an interest in science, but not really that data background. And we sort of really had to learn how to talk to each other. Uh, mm -hmm. And his team had this almost distrust of designers because designers had previously 
in working with the data, like stretched things or made the data less accurate. Uh, and I think that that's one of the things that designers need to be super, super careful and cognizant of um, with data visualization is that there are, there's clear yeses and nos, right? You you can make mistakes in a way that in illustration or design is just not as possible. Um, and and there's really things that you can screw up with data and you have to be aware of those things. And there there's rules to pie charts and bar charts and not truncating axes that you need to know and be respectful of. Um, And then as a data professional, I think that you need to sort of, once you have that conversation, trust your designer a little bit. Uh, If they've worked with data before, make sure that they're not going to screw it up, but but trust that that's not their intention, right? And they're really trying to work on clarity. They should be asking things about audience and context and really trying to figure out what your message is so that they can help make that visually clear. That's Mm -hmm. the point of adding a designer is making it more visually understandable to your audience um, so that they want to read it, they want to engage with it. And it often means either simplifying things or taking things away and and moving them around in in different ways. Uh, But that's that's part of the process. And, And usually you are very in it as a data professional and think things are clear, but that's not always true for your audience. It's rarely true. You are, (laughs) as a chart creator, you are not your audience because you are a subject matter expert. You know more, even at some point, if you were your audience, you are not anymore. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And that's actually what I wanted to ask you about next is the common sort of mistakes that people can make maybe on both sides of that equation in terms of, uh, giving information or working with designers, but also, as you said, designers can make some ish, uh, make some mistakes like uh, misrepresenting data or skewing it in the way that it's visualized. But are there things that stand out to you as, uh, as you know, quick and easy, almost checklist ideas that uh, you might want to look for if you're making those collaborations? Sure. Maybe not checklisty, but one of the mistakes I often see people make is not thinking about context and audience. Uh, So they're making a graphic for social media, but there's just way too much information in it. It's not the like easy takeaway clickable um, sort of information. Or they are designing a report and it's all bar charts. Maybe, yes, the bar chart is the best way to show this information. But when it is in a field of 40 other bar charts, it tends to get lost. And so sometimes having visual variety and chart variety is important, even if in that particular graph, it's maybe not the best, the first way you would do it. Um, But in that context, it makes it more engaging and understandable because it's not just lost in this sea. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the one of the things that I know you're passionate about is uh, accessibility and making sure that everyone is able to sort of understand and and access the, the material regardless of how they're coming to it. Uh, Can you say a little bit about how you bring that into your process? Sure. I think it's really important to think about accessibility from the start. Um, And when you're doing that, you want to make sure that you're using a tool where you can add in features to make your chart more accessible. Tools like Tableau are not accessibility friendly. However, if you're working with something like HighCharts or Everviz, they have accessibility features where you can use and add to your chart to make those friendly for screen readers, which is great. So chart tool choice is important there. 
You want to make sure that your colors are accessible, but it goes beyond just looking for colorblindness. There are actually more people that have low vision issues where you want to make sure that there's a high contrast than just looking for colorblindness issues. Um, if you're using color, you want to make sure that you're using dual encoding. So you're not just relying on color for a legend, but you're either directly labeling your bars, your lines, or if you have a key that you're using shapes and color for like a scatter plot um, so that you're not just relying on people to see red or green or this shade of color. So things like higher contrast, uh, using large text, and making sure things are easy to understand with clear labeling. You want to add alt text for screen readers, and I can talk more about that if you want to. Yeah, well, are there uh, are there better or worse ways of making things accessible that you've been seeing uh, more generally? I'm wondering if you have examples of like things where people may have missed the mark, they were trying to make it accessible and didn't quite do a good job, or maybe things that you've seen more recently where you know, that's a that's a great way to make it more accessible. So I have not seen ways in which people try to make things accessible and make it less accessible. I have seen ways in which people don't try to make things accessible and it's mm -hmm. not accessible. But I think if you start thinking about accessibility, the things that you do make things more accessible. So I don't think that they're if you're trying that sort of bites you in the butt and it's not going to um, make things less accessible. So that would be step one is to learn a little bit about accessibility and try. Sorry, what was the second part of that question? Yeah. Are there, are there better ways to do it then? Like maybe, uh, as you said, there may be some better tools you can use. Are there other ways that people have been? Because I know more and more people, I think, are becoming uh, better versed in ways of making things accessible. So I would imagine things are getting either a little easier to do or maybe a little bit more um, I don't know, more more effective. So what are any uh, more effective ways? Sure. I think particularly right now, there is this desire for alt text to be more descriptive. Chancy Fleet just wrote an article about um, how people with visual de deficits live in a visual desert, are her words, mm -hmm. so that there's not good descriptive of descriptions of things. There's not good um, resources to help people feel images. And so she's, you know, I think a little bit luckier than most because she has resources in New York, but that's not true for a lot of people uh, with vision issues. So one of the ways to com combat that is really good alt text. NASA just released some images from a satellite that had really descriptive, beautiful alt text that gave you the feeling of the image and really went beyond the, this is an image of stars and sort of described the horizon and the mood that it was conveying. So I think including alt text that goes beyond just what the thing is, but why you're including it and what is interesting about it to really help people understand and, and make up a little bit of that visual deficit that they're missing. Yeah, it's interesting. Have you been using or have you experimented at all with the AI? I've noticed there's some AI that will look at an image for you and write an alt text, but I don't know how good that is, especially compared to what you were just talking about. I have not experimented with it. I'm a little skeptical of AI for images because it will often 
describe that like it's a bunny in a green field, right? But mm-hmm. that's not why you're including that photo. That's not why you're you're including it. You're including it because like there's a metaphor there or with charts. Um, it might describe the fact that there's a bar chart and it goes from, you know, zero to 100 and what the color is. Uh, but that's not the relevant point. The relevant point is the takeaway, what people should be getting from this bar chart, why you're including it in the first place. And I think that's hard for AI to to do. And that's often why creators are tasked with creating the alt text. And it's much harder when it's farmed out to a third party source. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Are there other uh, considerations that people might miss? So obviously people with uh, vision deficits, the alt text is very important. What else is important with accessibility or what else do you think about? I think you think about tab order. Um, There's lots of people who navigate technology not with a mouse and clicking around, but making sure that they can tab through things. Um, Mm. And it's not just a pile of random numbers, but there's some logic to what is being read out loud. Um, But also if you're just navigating it, some people prefer tabbing through things um, or might not have the ability to use a mouse. Um, So thinking about how that functionality works in a chart uh, and really just going back to high contrast, um, making sure your text is large enough, it's meaningful Right, writing, understanding, and meaningful titles is the first step for accessibility. Because if you can't see the chart, but then maybe your title tells you what you're missing, that's that's helpful right there. Or it frames what you're seeing, so you're both seeing it and you're reading what you should be seeing. Mm-hmm. Sort of talking about that dual encoding again, and it reinforces it and goes to cognitive disability levels too. Right? Yeah. 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 So I wanted to ask you also about uh, the style guidelines because I know. You're, you're working on those uh, and you are, again, focused on, in some ways, the style guidelines. What have you been doing or what have you been thinking about in relation to those? Sure. So I've created three sets of style guidelines for organizations, um, one for the Sunlight Foundation, one for the government when I was working at CFPB, um, and then one for Morning Consult when I was there. Um, really... Style guidelines and accessibility go hand in hand at some point because you're making decisions for the organization on best practices. And if you bake accessibility into those guidelines, then your charts are going to be more accessibility, more accessibility friendly from the start. So if you make sure that your colors are high contrast enough that they can be read on whatever background you're using, that's going to be fewer accessibility sort of mistakes that your organization is making in the future because it's baked into the guidelines there. Unlock the full potential of your organization's data with business-driven data analysis. In this Pragmatic Institute course, you'll learn how to communicate better with stakeholders, provide concrete results based on the data available, and support business strategy. Find out more at pragmaticinstitute.com data. Yeah. How have you found rolling those out? Because I think there's one there's one issue of like creating them. There's another issue. And for people who can't see a reaction, there's a, I saw an interesting reaction from you. Um, what is uh, how how do you how do you approach using the style guideline or introducing it? Do you have any advice for people who have who have potentially made a great style guideline? What comes after and what are the challenges? 
Right. A lot of people think the work is done when you yeah. hand off the style guidelines or you're like, here, here's all my work and what you should be doing. Yeah. Um, but that is definitely, I think, where the work starts for a lot of people. When I was at the Sunlight Foundation, it was an organization of 45 people. And so I could have everyone in the office in a room with me and talk about yeah. these style guidelines and why they should be using them or not. If someone came to me with a chart, I could look at every chart that the organization produced because it was so small. Um, but then issues of scale, like at CFPB, where the organization is around 3,000, you're not looking at every chart that goes out. Um, I think really just knowing that they exist, making sure that people know that they exist, there's a person who can answer questions about them. Um, mm. I had a I held a lot of office hours, a lot of brown bags of what these are and why you should be using them. Um, knowing that my virtual door was open, that you could drop in and um, talk to me about if your chart was meeting these guidelines, what could be better. Uh, and also giving that little bit of a, a carrot. If, if you come, I will help you make your chart better. But also involving not just designers in the creation process of the style guidelines. Uh, at CFPB, we had graphic designers, UX designers, um, BI specialists, people from the data team. And we all worked together to create the best guidelines for this organization. And then they had ownership over it. Not just me, but this other small group of people could also evangelize it back to their coworkers, back to who they were working with. Um, so it really made my job a lot easier. And I didn't have to police. I don't like policing style guidelines, but um, but having people own it and and really evangelize it across the organization. Yeah. No, I'm curious, actually, uh, if you could say more about the policing, because I think some people might see these style guidelines as, you know, rules. And, you know, I personally, I don't like rules. Like, uh, I, if I, as soon as I see one, I think about how I can challenge it. Just I can't even help myself. But I'm sure people or you come across that. Uh, what's an alternative to policing it or, or the way that you would approach it? So if somebody is either hesitant to use the style guideline or is, you know, actively challenging it, what are alternatives than, you know, yelling at them, which I'm sure isn't productive? Sure. I, I think really trying to help people understand why they exist in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, great. Break the rules, but break them intentionally, right? I want you to be using different colors because you figured out that this project that you're working on is about, you know, slime and you're using bright green because it's about slime and that makes sense for this graphic don't use the organization colors in that case or like use them as background colors that's fine mm -hmm. uh but don't but then use the other structure that we've created um it helps you it enables people to break those rules intentionally mm. and it makes things a lot i think it makes breaking those rules easier because you know what they are you're not trying to create the rules as you're making the chart every single time. So it takes a lot of burden off you to be able to be more creative because you're not setting that baseline every time you're making a chart. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And have you had uh, experiences with people? Uh, like what kind of reactions have you had after either introducing it or maybe after a little bit of time has gone by? Um, any, any interesting uh, responses or things that you've noticed afterwards? That's an interesting question. I don't know. I think people get more comfortable with the guidelines and they are 
more prone to breaking them intentionally, right? You get, as mm. designers too, you get a little bit bored with them. And so for special projects, you're like, how can I take these guidelines and twist them in a different way? How can I still make it feel like this organization, but maybe I like flip the color palette so it's a dark background. And I think that makes it more interesting visual variety for the organization too, because you still are using some of those guidelines. You still have the basis of what's going on um, but you're you're pushing them, you're breaking them in different ways to provide visual variety, especially for special projects or or special features. It gives it that special feeling because it's not just the base of what the organization's doing. You're you're flipping the color palette or or doing something interesting. Yeah, yeah. And as you said, I mean, it's important that if a if a data professional has this great analysis that they've done, and you as a designer step in to make it easily understood by audiences. Um, what are some of the steps that you would take to do that? Uh, maybe you could walk us through how you actually ensure that the intended audience understands what you're hoping that they understand. Um, there's sort of a joke that designers just come into a project and ask why five times. And I think <laughs> that applies for data visualization designers too. Uh, you really need to get to the heart of what someone's trying to show and and understand mm -hmm. that goal and that message to be able to be able to to visually show it and visually convey it. I think what's helpful is involving the audience as much you much as you can, um, whether it's subject matter experts that you're talking to um, to help you better understand the data, whether it's uh, if you can co-design with members of the audience that you're trying to reach. Or if you can just do some user research or user testing, have having other people in that group that you're trying to reach look at your chart and then they can provide you the feedback of does this make sense to them or not. That tends to be the best way to, to see if people are understanding your chart, who you want to is literally showing it to them and asking them before you hit publish. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And what kind of things, maybe you could get into a little more detail there. Um, I know that, you know, in terms of user experience, you you're not supposed to ask uh, yes or no questions necessarily, but more open-ended in the sense of uh, what does this mean to you or how would you explain the meaning of this chart? But I wonder if you have techniques that you use when you're actually working with audiences or, uh, you know, a sample group of an audience. What do you actually do with them? Sure. I think uh, user testing for data visualization is slightly different. Um, in the fact that there is a right and a wrong answer. That's hmm. not true for most things or most designs are going to usability test because there's not, you have a goal, but there are different ways to interpret them and, and that's okay. With mm -hmm. data visualization, like you can get a wrong answer and it is clearly wrong. Um, so I was working at the CFPB and we were doing some user testing around a chart and people were reading this scale as an age range and it was just clearly not what it was um and so that was a, a definite wrong answer and mm -hmm. i think user testing for charts and graphs can have some of those simpler answers like what you know what is this what is the mean of this or um you know can you find this answer and can people do that simple math or or find that thing i think that's okay because there is a is a correct answer, wherein a lot of other things there's not. Um, so with that user testing, I knew that 
you know, my labeling wasn't working. Um, so we totally flipped the chart. We made it simpler. It didn't look like an age range anymore um, and had to had to do a bunch of rethinking because what I was doing was not not getting across. Shoot. I wonder, do you use uh, like multiple versions? Are you someone who does that? Is that helpful for you? Or do you do something and then uh, maybe respond after feedback? So in other words, I'm just imagining, do you have a few versions of your visualization or how do you work in that sense? I always do a few versions for me. Um, I think one of the most, so I teach and one of the most interesting assignments I give my students is that I have them look at a small data set. It's like 10 numbers or 10 data points. And they have to sketch out this data set in 30 ways, 30 different charts for this small data set. And sort of, it really pushes them to think in different ways to, um, they all get stuck around like 17 to 25. And those last five charts, they've got to make really interesting and weird. And sometimes you get the best visualizations in those last ones after they push past being stuck. So I always do a full, a few versions because usually your first um, ideas are like, oh, make it a bar chart. And that's really helpful to, to sort of see the data and see what's going on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but usually you can, you can find more creative ways. Maybe you can like take information out. So those first few versions are helpful, but maybe not what you ultimately decide to go with. And you, uh, like, I, I know that some people might test out sort of, I imagine like the uh, ophthalmologists who are like uh, lens one or lens two, A or B, and they do that kind of thing. Others I know uh, from personal, personally talking to them that they hate that kind of way of doing it. I wonder if you have kind of a preference or anything when you're actually working with others, like audiences or anything? Yeah, I I think I try and value people's time. Um, always trying to pay uh, user testing participants when I can. Um, I really try and save those internal versions if I'm doing like guerrilla user testing with a coworker, with, you know, my husband who's never seen this data before. Look at yeah. all these versions, tell me what's working or not. Um, and he'll do the same thing for me with other work. So like that is, I'm not, I'm not wasting his time as much as someone from this particular audience who I brought in for this special thing. I want to make yeah. sure that I'm giving them what I think is the best version and asking for their feedback on me presenting my best. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I wonder if you uh, if you have any ideas about, I know there's kind of like the simplest chart is the best chart is some ways of thinking of it. But then as you were talking about already, more interesting or unique charts can capture people's attention and, and you know, simply be better visualizations. How do you kind of balance the, the idea of simplicity with, uh, you know, unique and interesting out of the box ways of, of presenting information as well, like your Plato example? Sure. I think there's an, an aspect of memorability to it, right? Uh -huh. um, Michelle Borkin and a bunch of her colleagues have done some research on chart memorability. And it's not the bar charts that people end up remembering. Mm -hmm. um, there was a visualization by Gabrielle Marie recently. Um, it's if cows were a country, they would be among the top greenhouse gas emitters. And so it's <laughs> five bars, but one of them is a cow. It's not actually a bar. It's a cow. Um, and it's the height that it would be and labeled like another bar. Um, so while not 
maybe the absolute most accurate. You're not looking at this in a data table. You're making a visualization so that it's memorable. You're um, giving people sort of more context to the, to the information. And visualizations are a summary anyways. If you wanted people to know exactly all of the data, you'd be giving them a table. Um, and so we make design choices in our visualizations. I think it's fine to do some of the fun, memorable stuff if you can, if your audience is okay with it, right? Um, I don't quite remember what the context for this was, uh, but it definitely made its way around Twitter, right? I remember it to pull it up as an example. Yeah, um, yeah. So I think things like, I think things like this are useful. Yeah. I wonder also if, uh, you know, just building on that, things like fonts and, uh, and the shape of a graph or the, the way it's presented, you know, uh, formatting, uh, how do you balance that? Do you play with things? Do you, tr I know if, uh, maybe depending on the context, you like Arial font is the easiest to read or something. Do you stick to that or do you maybe play with some scripts and things like that? How do you, how do you do that? And how would you encourage others to think about that? Like things as simple as choosing a fancy font or choosing like the most basic, but therefore easiest to read these kinds of things. Sure. Um, I think in choosing your fonts, often I'm working for a brand or an organization mm. and hopefully they have some sort of guidelines that I'm following. And so I'm often using whatever is provided for me. Um, in data visualization, I think you need something that works really hard for you. Uh, so a sans serif font, usually hopefully something that has a condensed version because sometimes you need to pack a lot of numbers in there and having a mm -hmm. condensed sans serif is really helpful to have in your toolkit when sometimes other things won't fit. As far as titling and, and serif fonts, it depends on the context, right? And so if I'm doing a graph about, you know, handwriting, maybe I'm using a handwriting font yeah. to sort of help that dual encoding help get the message across. Um, but if you're thinking about more serious data, COVID rates or something like that, I'm using not as fun of a uh, of a font. They sort of have to to fit the message, fit the tone of the chart. Yeah, actually, it's interesting. I remember uh, talking to a few people about the COVID charts in particular, especially you know at the uh, height of the pandemic where the COVID numbers, when they were spiking, were going sort of up and to the right, which were kind of trained in, based on, you know, financial charts to think like on some level, that's good, right? Up and to the right is always a good thing. So the argument was they should be going like down, even though the, the rates are getting larger, the, the numbers were getting larger, that yeah. they shouldn't be going up and to the right because people think like, oh, profit, you know, like we're just kind of trained sure. for that. So I wonder if you, if there are examples of things that you've seen where people might want to choose something different or consider the, um, I guess, the biases inherent in certain kinds of charts or certain kinds of representations? Is there anything that comes to mind uh, when choosing those things, especially when it's accurate? Like, for example, if, if more people are getting COVID and you're showing the graph going up and to the right, it's not that it's not accurate, but it may have implications. I thought that was an interesting element and I wonder if you have more ideas or thoughts about that kind of thing. Yeah, there's um there's another chart called Iraq's bloody toll and mm. it it sort of has the baseline at the top and it's a red bar chart and it drips down. 
mm. as the death count rises. Um, so that's another good example of of taking that sort of approach. Um, I think at the height or mid-pandemic, we just started seeing a lot of the same line charts of mm-hmm. COVID rates and COVID counts. Um, I think one of the things that added visual variety to that was there was an opinion piece in the New York Times that sort of had this spiral graphic uh, of COVID case rates. And while maybe not the most accurate, it was the, or not maybe the most easily accurate way to compare the data, we had had more accurate representations, but this was, uh, it was sort of the illustration, it was the the top visual for the piece. Um, and it got people sort of thinking this year over year spiral and how case rates go um, with this seasonality impact mm. that I don't think I had sort of seen before because we had just been looking at it in one line over time rather than comparing year to year. Um, so sometimes when you change the format of things, uh, if you had been looking at tons of line charts or, or bar charts, adding in something that even though it might be less uh, less easy to compare, but you it adds a different approach. It makes you think differently. It makes you feel something, which yeah. I think is quite valuable. Yeah, and that's a good point. And I mean, earlier we talked about information is beautiful. I wonder if there are other places that you you regularly look at for inspiration or that you would encourage people to check out just in terms of thinking about, you know, if if not a bar chart or a line chart, then something different, or even if it's not something that they'll use themselves, at least it gets them thinking. As a designer, where do you go for inspiration when you're specifically thinking about, um, you know, like representing information? Sure. Um, I think Information is Beautiful Awards is a great place to look. Um, I love a newsletter. I don't like going hunting for information. So when things show up in my inbox and I get to read them, that's great. Uh, Nathan Yao at Flowing Data has a great newsletter that tends to be a little bit of a roundup of mm-hmm. what's happening in data viz and will highlight uh, interesting and weird things that I might not have seen myself. So that's a great resource. I also think it's helpful to to look outside data visualization. Um going out into the world and looking at, you know, art or other color palettes or um, sort of design aesthetics that aren't in visualization. And then how can you take that, take that spacing or that white space um, and apply it to data visualization? I think that's also really a really interesting area. Um, I tend to have a Pinterest board of just things that I like. And then when I get that, I collect all the time. And then when I get stuck on a visualization going back to it and being like, oh, I could take something from here. I could lift this from here and remix it in this way. And it could, it could help my visualization be better. Yeah. Yeah. And are there exercises? It sounds like you have uh, some interesting things like making 30 uh, different charts. Are there others that you maybe do with students or that you do yourself that maybe people listening could try out uh, if, especially if they have some time to experiment? Sure. You know, I, I think the Pinterest board is great is just always being on your game of collecting things that you find interesting and maybe it's not relevant for this project, but it's something you could come back to. I think mm-hmm. it's also a really interesting exercise to annotate why you found that thing interesting. Because when you come back to it, yeah. you know, three months later, why did I pin this? What was cool about it? Oh, I liked the colors. I liked the annotations that they did here. Um, I thought this was 
you know, a really interesting font choice or the the spacing in this thing was the juxtaposition of these two things was nice. Uh, so not just pinning things, but thoughtfully pinning them of why you're doing it yeah. and, and making yourself think why you like this thing, why it's interesting to you. Yeah, the 30 or yeah, sketching data 30 ways. I've also done that for organizations. Um, when I was working through the style guide at the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, is I took a team. Actually, I, ha- I had everyone. It didn't matter if you were a BI developer or a data uh, analyst, you were invited to participate in this exercise. But I think my designers got the most out of it. Mm-hmm. Is that we just took the same small data set and made as many bar charts as we could and just iterated on iterated and did weird stuff that we knew would not work or would not make it into the style guide. But then that caused us to think about other things. Um, And so I think we came up with like 30 to 50 different bar charts of six data points using the same color palette. And it really pushed us to, to think in weird ways and, and got us to some, some interesting conclusions. Yeah, that sounds cool. And like a good exercise when people can do that, or especially if it can be facilitated, it sounds like in an organization. We also printed them all out and and did some dot voting on them as a group. Right. And so we could see what was working or what was not working about different charts and figure it out collaboratively. Yeah, I think that reflection part, as you mentioned, is really important too, because out, you know trying out things is cool, but reflecting on them and noting them can be really helpful, especially for like looking back on it and, uh, and improving your skill set. So, yeah. So sort of related to that, I I like to ask people two pieces of advice, whether it's a a challenge to do or just something to try to implement, but for people listening to this conversation who want to improve their game, whether that's, uh, making charts or working with uh, designers uh, in relation to the charts or info that they've collected. Um, but yeah, for people who want to just make an improvement, maybe it's slight or maybe it's, you know, huge, what are two things that they could do that might lead to uh, a significant change or improvement in, in the work that they're doing? What are two things that they could do that you might suggest? Sure. So the first thing is that when you think you have your chart, push yourself to do two more, um, mm-hmm. whether it's you, you think you've come to this conclusion, but maybe the next one's better or it will highlight something differently. So once you think you're at a stopping point, take a moment and then do two more. Nice. Um, And then when you're thinking about visualizations, involve your audience uh, as much as you can. So do some user testing as much as, even if you can't find a member of your audience, find someone who's never seen the chart before. Do it over Zoom, do it, you know, print it out. It doesn't matter, but ask other people to look at your charts and see if they're coming to the conclusion that you want them to. Yeah. So I think those, yeah, those are simple to implement, but really powerful tools. For sure. For people who want to know more about you or just follow your work, uh, where can they, where can they look or where do you recommend that they check out Amy? Sure. So you can look at my website. Again, I'm freelancing. So if you want some Amy perspective on things, uh, I freelance and consult amycecil.com. I'm on LinkedIn and you can follow me there as well as I'm still occasionally on Twitter at Amy Cecil. Nice. So yeah, I think that's lots of lots of great information and just ways of like pushing yourself. I love it when people listening, you know, it's not uh, going to necessarily completely change the, the way that they're doing things. But as you said, if they can push themselves to do two more, 
uh, versions of something and, and push themselves to get more user feedback as they're working on things, even if it's not, even if they already do that, doing a little bit more, just trying to do that, I think is great advice. Um, and yeah, lots to think about. I think uh, people will probably check out your work and the things that you've been doing as well after listening to this and which I encourage them to do. Uh, Amy, it's so great to talk to you and get, get this advice from you. Thank you so much. It was great. A great conversation. Mm-hmm.